And now, stay tuned for another episode of the Traumatic States of America. Welcome to the Traumatic States of America. Our main goal is to begin to heal some of the trauma we have suffered, both individually and collectively. I am your host, Dr. Lori Hood, and I will be talking with people from all walks of life who have suffered trauma in its myriad forms. Military veterans, attorneys, first responders, football players, stay-at-home moms, and many more. We will hear how trauma has not only affected them, but their families and communities, as we take an in-depth look at what science has to offer and what can be done to prevent, mitigate, and help recover from trauma. I am here today with Steve Murphy, and Steve Murphy is retired. He called himself a cop. He was a, a police officer for 12 years and then became a DEA agent. So welcome, Steve Murphy. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So um, Steve Murphy is is probably, well, not by his family, I'm sure, but most well-known for um, being the person who took down Pablo Escobar. And why don't you tell them a little, I mean, I've, I've, I can look him up on Wikipedia or something, but there's, a, there's a, you know, a real person there, and you had a real interaction with him, with your, your partner, for years, right? Right. Yeah. So, so in, um, I joined, I started as a police officer in 1975 in a small town in southern West Virginia called Bluefield. Uh, uniformed police officer there for six years, then a railroad policeman for about five and a half years with Norfolk Southern Railroad Company, then joined DEA. My first post was uh, Miami in 1987. In you know, the late 80s, uh, the Wild West was still going on with all the cocaine cowboys and so forth. Uh, in South Florida, the, the violence was still unbelievable, what was going on, bodies being found almost on a daily basis, uh, the United States just being flooded with cocaine. But then in 1991, I was transferred to Bogota, Colombia for three years. Um, when I got there, first of all, you know, when you when you go to an overseas assignment like that, you don't know what case you're going to be assigned to. So, you know, you go in and, and it takes it takes quite a few days to get processed into the embassy and get your clearances and meet people. And I um, didn't know hardly any of the agents in the office there, but I did meet uh, two guys, Javier Pena and Gary Sheridan. Those guys were the case agents uh, targeting the Medellin cartel, primarily Pablo Escobar, who at that time was um, the world's first narco-terrorist. So three days after I got there is when Pablo surrendered to his custom-built prison, which everybody knows is the cathedral, La Cathedral. Right. Um, And I thought that was a really good thing. I thought, hey, the world's (laughs) biggest cocaine dealer is in jail now. Um, But what I saw in the embassy was disappointment. Yeah, from the agents, from State Department, from all the different agencies, uh, the CIA, the FBI, uh, all the different agencies there, and the, including the Colombian National Police. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? And what it was is the guys, Pablo was responsible for killing so many innocent people and so many police officers and military personnel that, you know, when I found out what the terms were of his plea agreement, his surrender, I realized what a ridiculous plea agreement he had had swayed the government to agree to, right. you know, he, he got to build his own prison. He paid for it. So, you know, it's, it, 
<laughs> it's not like any prison I've ever seen anywhere in the world. Right, it was like a palace, right? I mean, he, and he had he had things coming in and going all the time, right? It, it was. It was more like a country club setting, to be quite honest with you. Of course, we didn't know that till eighteen months later when he escaped, and I'm sorry, one year later when he escaped. And that's when uh, Javier and I, who are now the, the lead case agents on the Medellin cartel, the day after Pablo escaped from his custom-built prison, Javier and I flew to Medellin, and we lived there for the next 18 months with the Colombian National Police. Wow. Um, wow. That's, that's when I really got my feet wet in Colombia, to be quite honest with you. And you, can, you must have stuck out like a sore thumb, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> You're not kidding. <laughs> you, know, you were easy to spot, uh, right? <laughs> oh, well, I tell you, my, my family heritage is English and Irish. I'm about as white as you get. I right. don't blend into a Hispanic country at all. Right. I'm six foot two. I have light colored eyes, light colored hair. Uh, I'm taller than almost everybody in that country. And like my wife and I, we'd go shopping at one of the local malls there in Bogota. People would stop and just stare at me as I walked down the, the you know, the, the highway there. And I'm thinking, well, did I leave my zipper down or did I have something in my teeth or <laughs> what's going on? But, you know, it's, they just didn't, hadn't seen many gringos, I guess, at that point in a lot of places. Um, so it was, I was, did not blend in at all, you know, and plus you can tell with my uh, accent here, I'm, I'm a Southern boy. Um, and so I kind of see, speak Southern Spanish. Southern Spanish. <laughs> uh, I still haven't figured out how to say y'all in Spanish, no. but uh, still working on it. But uh, it was, you know what? It was an adventure. And, and that's why I, that's what I look at life as. It, life is an adventure. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. You can have fun. You know, I, as I moved up through the ranks uh, within DEA, People are always hesitant when the new boss comes in and they're they're walking on eggshells to find out, you know, what makes you mad, what makes you happy, and things like that. And I, I would tell everybody, I have never read in any leadership book or any management book or any training manual where it says you have to be miserable when you're at work. There's no law against having fun while you're at work. Yeah. Now, what we call fun in law enforcement, most people probably think <laughs> we're sick, but... Um, but you know what? I think the same with firemen. I can't believe that firemen run into burning buildings like they do. But they do, and so they love they, it, and they love it. Yeah, they do. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So you, um, so you told me a story one time, and it it just you know from from a traumatologist standpoint, just really stuck out with me. Um, it was about um, two. How long ago did we meet? Two or three years ago? It's been a little while now. It has been. Yeah. But I remember you telling me that at that time you had been back to Medellin for the first time since you had left after the, you know, the everything had gone down and, and Pablo was mm-hmm. killed. Um, and that you were there for some sort of a production or television or something. And you were riding in a van with a young gal who was like a, you know, studio production person or something. And mm-hmm. you and Javier were there and motorcycles were coming up behind you. Can you tell us that story? Because I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, just the the triggered trauma, right? It did. Um, so we flew into the Rio Negro airport, which is outside the city of Medellin. And Medellin itself, the city is built down in a bowl between two mountains. So the, the airport is up on top of the mountain and it's about a 45 minute drive from Rio Negro airport down into the city of Medellin. Very mountainous, very... Uh, curvy roads, uh, two lane roads for the most part. People drive like maniacs, like, you know, like people I grew up with. It's, it's just scary. <laughs> and so 
when you come out of that airport, and it was Javier and I in the back seat, and it wasn't a van; it was one of these little Renault cars. Oh, you know, so there was a there was a production driver, there was a production assistant in the front seat, Javier and I in the back, and the car is so small, our t- our shoulders are actually touching each other. Well, when you come out of the airport, there's about a mile stretch, a straightaway. Um, so we're driving down that road, and, and like you said, we have, I have been back to Medellin since uh, May of 1994. So as we're driving down that road, Javier and I just, we didn't say anything. We both just turned around at the same time and looked back at the entrance to the airport, just mostly looking to see how things had changed. And when we turned around and looked, we saw two groups of motorcycles come out from both sides of the road oh and start start following us. And they're at a pretty good distance behind us. Mm-hmm. And so we, we turned around and looked, kind of looked at each other. And then we looked back and one motorcycle with two people on it kind of peeled off from the pack and started coming at us faster and faster. Mm-hmm. Now, why that is significant is back during the day, one of Pablo's favorite assassination techniques was two guys on a motorcycle. The guy in the back would be carrying a machine gun, and as they drove through, you know, drove past you either, or you were maybe stopped in traffic, he would open up with that machine gun and kill people that, you know, whatever targets Pablo had designated. So here comes this motorcycle with two riders on it, and and I just kind of look at each other wide-eyed, and the production assistant turned around and looked at us. She's like, are you guys okay? (laughs) Well, you know, just give it a minute. Let's see what happens here. Maybe, maybe not. You know, we don't have any weapons. I mean, we can't even lay down the seat because the car is so small. (laughs) And you know what? That motorcycle got up to us, and it just went right on by. It was just traffic. Yeah. But the the memories that uh, it brought back, you know, were real for us. And, you know, after we calmed down a little bit, not that we got too excited, but, you know, we explained to the production assistant what was going on. Mm -hmm. She was so young. This all happened before she was born. So I'm not sure she really understood the significance of what we were talking about. But it, it comes to your point about, you know, how things can dredge up memories that you just as soon forget. Right, right. Yeah. And, and they, they kind of stay there. Um, so just to um, go back, I mean, so so for people who aren't old enough to remember, um, of course, I barely remember, right? And I just heard about, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, maybe maybe fill people in. I mean, it, it was it was a huge deal in the world at the time, and and it you know it, it affected politics and policy, and you know, it just it affected it seemed like it affected our lives in every way, shape, or form. So, can you give us an idea about that? I sure can. You know, this is. We're talking about Pablo Escobar, the world's first narco-terrorist, a man who became the world's most wanted criminal after he escaped from prison. I mean, we all remember the the TV show here in the United States, America's Most Wanted. They actually flew a film crew down for a week, and we took them up to Medellin. And in all the years they were on the air, they only did one episode of The World's Most Wanted, and that was against Pablo Escobar. Um, I didn't know that. And it was... It was extremely, extremely dangerous just trying to film that because we filmed outside the entrance to his famous ranch, Finca Napolis. Um, you know, we had the Columbia National Police out there for protection, but we went into the little town up the road, just about five or 10 miles from the entrance to his ranch. Ooh. And the police told us, you've got 10 minutes and we're out of here because the locals, they'll, they'll mount an attack on us. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the camera crew set up real quick. They did some traffic stops. They got their film footage, and, and we got the trucks and left as quickly as we could. But you're also talking about a man who introduced a business model into drug trafficking that made him responsible for as much as 80% of the world's cocaine, first in the United States, and then he expanded his operations worldwide. And so just, just 
think about that, Lori. I mean, regardless of whatever occupation you have, let's let's look at yours as a podcaster. Wouldn't you like to have 80% of the audiences out there that listen to podcasts? Yeah. Holy cow. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just a monopoly almost. Mm-hmm. So um, you're talking about a person who... Uh, Forbes magazine, an internationally right financial or internationally recognized financial magazine, estimated Pablo's uh, wealth at between eight and thirty billion, not million, but billion dollars. Yeah, in the nineties. I often wonder in the nineties, right? <laughs> late eighties, early nineties, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just one year; it was, I think, it was six or seven years running. You can look it up, and you know, you still find the articles on it. I've often wondered how they came up with their numbers because we certainly should, uh, couldn't come up with it. But um, if you do your research now and, and just Google uh, the 10 or 15 richest or just the richest criminals of all time in the world, Pablo is still number one. You know, really? nobody has surpassed him yet. Okay, there are some that have come close to different parts of the world, but nobody's come up to that 30 uh, billion dollar market. Wow. It's unbelievable. This is a man who had no conscience, yeah. who had no remorse, yeah. who would tell you what he wanted you to do. And if he didn't do it, he just simply killed you. Mm-hmm. And he'd go to the next person and tell them what he wanted. And if they didn't do it, the same thing happened. So, has there ever been a, like a, a total body count? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you can't, there, you can't account for every single person they killed, but he killed just, I mean, does anybody have an idea? Well, we, now we being Javier and I, you know, we, uh, we have a little uh, speaking business. We're traveling around the world. We tell a true story about Pablo. And, mm-hmm. and we estimate the total number of deaths between 10 and 15, maybe 20,000 wow. that Pablo is responsible for. Yeah. Now, there was one remaining Sicario. A sicario is a Spanish word for assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one remaining Sicario that worked for Pablo. He went by the, the nickname of Popeye. His mm-hmm. name was John Jairo Velasquez Vasquez. He just passed away a few months ago oh, in wow. Colombia. Mm-hmm. But we did a documentary, I want to guess, a year or two ago. Uh, we went up to Vancouver, British Columbia, and filmed up there and and. They decided they wanted to interview him as well, and they did. We recommended mm-hmm. they not, but of course they did anyway because it you know brought in viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, they told him what our numbers were. He said, <laughs> "He said those guys don't know what you're talking about." He said the number of murders that Pablo's responsible for is more like fifty thousand people. Yeah, yeah, fifty thousand. I yeah. grew up in a little town in Tennessee and West Virginia. We didn't even have that many people right. in those little towns. Right. Right. It's just amazing. Yeah. So I just looked it up and it says uh, Pablo Escobar is the richest criminal in history. Mm-hmm. Richest, yeah, Still is. Biggest fraud creator in the world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, the, just the, you know, it, it seemed to me the ruthlessness. And of course, you know, you know, if somebody's in that kind of a business, they're going to be a little ruthless just to get their business done, maybe. But it seemed mm-hmm. like it was, un, it was an unnecessary ruthlessness. Just, um, wanton um, murder. I mean, um, it was. He, you know, he. Uh, well, here's a funny story that we don't tell this one very often. But um, his sister, he bought his sister a car, and he put a handwritten note on the dashboard. He said, "This this car belongs to my sister. I strongly suggest you leave it alone." Signed, Pablo Escobar. Wow. <laughs> what better insurance policy is that? Wow, no kidding, no kidding. So I want to just back up a little bit because you mentioned your little speaking thing or something like that. So just for the audience, um, um, Steve Murphy and, and Javier Pena um, have a, a worldwide speaking tour. It's a global speaking tour. And uh, I guess last year was your your fifth year 
Um, but um, and I've been to one of their one of their speaking engagements, and it's phenomenal because they they you know you might see that if, if you see Narcos on Netflix, I mean that's kind of the half Hollywoodized, maybe more um, version of it. But you can actually hear the story from you know both of the DEA agents who who actually you know eighteen months, and and I remember you saying at one point. Um, it was like you eat, breathed, and slept him. Like you were almost obsessed. And I remember thinking you would have mm-hmm. to be because your your brain and body would be in, in such a hyper-aware state to just survive. And like we were talking about pre-show, no cell phones. I mean, no. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. sticking out like a sore thumb. I mean, it wasn't like you could hide very well, right? So, right. Um, and, him, and him and all of his Sicarios looking for you all the time, I would think, right? They were, in fact. Pablo put a bounty. He had a, he had a bounty on police, Columbia police officers mm-hmm. of a hundred dollars. I mean, oh. that's just ridiculous that their life was worth a hundred bucks. Oh my gosh! But he put a bounty on Javier and I both of three hundred thousand dollars each. Oh my! I didn't um, know that. Wow. That's not a comfortable feeling. I'll tell you. Ooh. Yeah. 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 That just sounds terrifying to me to be you know, every. Every step you take, every breath you take. I mean, I didn't mean to sound like a police song there, but you know, really, I mean, somebody's watching you. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, well, yeah, or you feel like they are, and and you know, being in law enforcement, you're you learn to be aware of your surroundings. But when you're in a situation like that, where you're actually living there, uh, we were living up in Medellin. We're you know, we're going out on operations every day. We're going out in the Huey helicopter gunships. We're going out in unmarked cars and surveillances. We're meeting informants. Uh, all in conjunction with the Columbia National Police, I might add. We did nothing unilaterally down there. This was, you know, we had no jurisdiction down there. This is their country. Right, right. But, on, you know, on a daily basis, you're going out and doing Sometimes you're going out in the trucks on patrols, and, you know, there were times where we just go out and, and we would patrol the mountains for a few days trying to find labs, just trying to find hideouts, uh, follow up on leads. Um, I was a much younger man back then, <laughs> a lot better shape than I am now. Um but it was, uh, you know, and I, and I certainly don't want to trivialize it, but it was, um, it was, it was a true adventure, mm-hmm. and you become hyper vigilant about what's going on around you, not to the point of paranoia, because it something like that can overtake your life. Yeah. Um, but you know, my, I'm very fortunate in the fact that my wife is very good at keeping me grounded. Um, she was very concerned for my safety, but she also realized the significance and the importance of our mission. Right. So she's back in Bogota, you know, for 18 months by herself. I'd get to come home on weekends sometimes. Wow. But, uh, you know, we adopted our first daughter during that time in October of 93 and probably was killed in December. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, she primarily had to take care of all that. I was there for the adoption process and so forth. But, you know, now there's the first couple months where I can't even be there with my new daughter. I have two sons back here in the United States at the time, but wow. um, it was yeah, it was a little bit trying. It was a little stressful. It just adds another stressful. level of stress, something else to worry stressful. about. Yeah, no, that's just <laughs> incredible. So, so that was one thing that really piqued my attention about you is that um, you know having some understanding of of trauma and that that's what I do, and then you know some understanding about what you dealt with i mean obviously i can't understand totally because i think you would have to be there and breathe it and smell it and see it and feel it and but just just listening to you speak about it um i don't know how you did it and and you know maybe it's a testament to your marriage that that you know you were able to do what you did and and didn't she teach down there too for a while well she's a nurse by profession but 
um, because of the danger factor down there, American wives were not allowed to work out in the public. So, you know, in the show Narcos, it shows that she worked in a little communal hospital and, uh, you know, none of that's true. That's all Hollywood on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, she worked in the embassy first as a community liaison officer, which helped new American employees come to the embassy get settled. Then mm-hmm. um, she, let's see, what's she doing now? She worked in the embassy post office for a little while, but then DEA picked her up and uh, she worked in the file room there in our office mm-hmm. until uh, we adopted our first daughter. And then she became a full-time mom mm-hmm. with, the, with the new baby. And that was October of 93, and then we adopted our second daughter down there in May of 94, just before we transferred back to the United States. Wow. Wow. Um, just, but there's, you know, back to what you're t- touching on there, there, we get at, every show we do, we have a question and answer session. Um, and one of the most frequently asked questions is, how in the world did you guys survive? Well, you know me, there's, I'm a small town country boy, and Javier's from a town smaller than the one I grew up from. He's down in South Texas close to the radar on the border. Mm-hmm. Um, there is honestly, and I'm not saying this just to be humble. It's, there's nothing special about us. You know, we're just regular people. You know, we love being police officers. Uh, never really wanted to do anything else. Uh, we, in fact, we tell everybody there's, you know, you've heard the old saying, you find a job you like, you never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, we both felt like we'd found that job with DEA. We loved it that much. But, and the fact that we're just normal guys, uh, there's several reasons I want to mention. The first is we're both Christians, and uh, I believe the good Lord is the reason we're still alive today. He's, I believe he has a plan for everybody, and um, I know not everybody agrees with me. I get hooted at a little bit sometimes on stage when I say things like this, but um, I'm also a believer in setting your standards and living up to those standards. Mm-hmm. So give him the full credit for keeping us alive. Why? Well, you know, what's his plan for me? I don't know. Maybe it's to talk to you today. I'm not sure what it is, but <laughs> you know, thank God he was there behind us because he protected us. Second is uh, we were a lot younger, as I alluded to earlier. So we were in much better shape physically than we are now, and we'd gone through some additional training uh, that helped us to deal with situations down there, especially with weapons training. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third is we worked with a very elite group of Colombian National Police officers called the Dijin Unit, D-I-J-I-N. Uh, these were plainclothes officers that uh, collected their own intelligence, and then they went and acted on it. That's who we lived with. We slept in the same quarters with. You know, We ate meals with them. These are the guys that we were with for 18 months down there. Mm-hmm. These are the guys that we trusted with our lives every day, to be quite honest with you, right. because we knew – when the firefight started, they would run off and leave us. But right. the same token, because of that mutual respect and trust we had for each other, they knew that Javier and I wouldn't run off and leave them either. Right. So, um, you know, and then, of course, my wife being back there, being a, a good support system for me when I was home. Uh, I mean, it's funny. We, we laugh. She even laughs now that uh, if I'm in Medellin and, and Javier was back in, in Bogota, yeah, you know, the first thing we do every morning is whoever's in Medellin would report back to the embassy what had happened the previous night, mm-hmm. so that you know the embassy was always up to speed on what was going on. And my wife would come into the embassy and 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 Javier would go find her and say, "Hey, Steve's already called in. He's okay. Said so he'll call you when he can." <laughs> well, I might not be able to call her for two to three days. <laughs> oh wow, really? Wow. But you know, she's like, you know, you had time to call Javier, but you couldn't call, call me. me. But she understood. <laughs> Yeah, she understood. I mean, it was it was the the priorities of the mission, to be quite honest exactly. with you. Yeah, yeah. And and that leads to another point of you know where are your priorities? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I believe that priorities should be God, then your family, then your work. 
But the truth is, and I think this is true for an awful lot of people, our priorities end up being work and then our families and then God. I think we've got them completely backwards. And I know that was true for me, mm-hmm. uh, especially during that time. And I'm, you know, I'm still somewhat of a workaholic, even in, I guess, I was supposed to be retired, but I'm, I feel like I've worked <laughs> as much now as I always have. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I like energy. it. <laughs> so, um, you got to do something about it. That's right. Um, but I think that's also just normal. I think, you know, given the circumstances, and I think we chatted about this too, that, that you really needed to be focused on um, work at that and then mission at that time, right? Because you couldn't let your guard down and, you, and every bit of information was important and, you know, the informants were important. And um, so that takes me to something else. I mean, I don't you know if, if people realize this, but, but you know, I'm thinking that you never really knew if an informant was an informant or if it was just somebody, you know, that you, it was a plant, right? Or somebody who was going to kill you. I mean, did you, you had to meet people that you didn't know, right? Absolutely. Well, it was the same here in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it comes to informants, one of the first things you have to do is deter- make a determination of what their motivation is. Why, why is it they want to come and talk to the police? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's lots of different factors. I mean, it could be that they've been arrested and they want to work off to, you know, get a reduction in their sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, they might be a drug trafficker trying to take out their competition by snitching them. Uh, might be wanting money. You know, they just come in as straight up mercenary working for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be wanting to find out what you know. Uh, you know, they'll bait you with little details to see what you know. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you have to learn when it comes to dealing with informants because they can be just as good at getting information out of you as you are getting information out of them. Right, right. In Columbia, um, you know, we got to the point where we started a one eight hundred tip tip line there in Columbia, and the phone bank was right there at the police base in Medellin where Javier and I were living. And the United States government put up a five million dollar reward. Well, back during this time, Columbia was a country of haves and have nots when it comes to financial uh, means. So you're either very wealthy or you weren't. There was really no middle class during that time. So, you know, if somebody's offering $5 million, that, that's a pretty big incentive. I don't know what that would be, you know, equivalent to in today's dollars. I'd say more like maybe 7 or $8 million. But uh, that's an awfully big incentive. Mm-hmm. When the people would call in, the potential tipsters, they didn't really want to talk to the Columbia National Police. They wanted to talk to the gringos because everybody knew, you know, we were there. Uh, and it wasn't just us. We had the U.S. Army's Delta Force was there with us. We had the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 with us. All those guys were with us for 18 months up there. I didn't know had that. The, wow. Yeah, the CIA was coming and going. They weren't there on a permanent basis, but they'd, they'd pop in every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't just high of the only gringos there, but we were the only two law enforcement gringos there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and this is kind of funny, too. <laughs> it's funny now. It wasn't funny back then because we didn't know. <laughs> Um, you probably heard of the group Los Pepes, mm-hmm. which was um, what that it was an acronym for people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. So these were people who were against Pablo. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, we have ultimately learned it was comprised of the Medellin cartel, some former, um, I'm sorry, of the Cali cartel, the Rodriguez Orobrela brothers and, and their two co- cohorts up there. Uh, former members of the Medellin cartel, and we now know that there were a couple of Columbia National Police officers involved. No, we did oh, not know that no. at the time. Okay. So this informant shows up, and he's been sanctioned by the Colombian Attorney General that we can work with him. Now, we have no idea who the guy is, but we noticed him hanging around, and Javier and I went to the colonel, the Colombian police colonel there that was in charge, Hugo Martinez. 
He said, Colonel, who is this guy? And, and he said, well, you know, he's been authorized by the attorney general to work with us and provide information. But he said, you know, you guys be careful around. We don't really trust him all that much. Well, his name was um, um, Diego Murillo, who we called Don Berna was his nickname. Um, okay. After Pablo's dead, what we found out was Don Berna was a former bodyguard for the Moncada family. Uh, Kiko Moncada was one of Pablo's lieutenants. He's one of the men that Pablo killed in prison, which led to his escape. Uh, wow. Don Berna is just as big a murderer as Pablo Escobar was. Really? And now he's working for us as an informant. Hmm. Well, here's the funny thing. He had his own bodyguards. <clears throat> and, you know, back then, everybody had bodyguards down there because of the, the narcotics wars that were going on, mm -hmm. as well as the insurgent activities and, mm -hmm. you know, just plain old street crime. Mm -hmm. So normally when we, when Jaime and I were going to go meet an informant, the police officers would go with us and, you know, you go out, we would go do pre-surveillance to make sure it wasn't a setup. Mm -hmm. um, typically we would, you don't want to bring informants into the police base because there were spies that were watching the gates. Uh, you, you know, you don't want them to come to the embassy because the same thing happens there. Mm -hmm. So we would meet them at the Medellin bus station. It's one of the largest, I think it is the largest bus station in the whole country of Colombia. I mean, there's just thousands of people coming and going there. Okay. And so when the when our police friends, you know, the Tahini unit, if they were tied up on other things uh, and not available, well, Colonel Martinez would tell Don Bernard to have his guys go with us and protect us. Wow. I got to tell you, when, when they were with us, <laughs> nobody messed with us. <laughs> I think Everybody else knew who they were except us, right. you know, but so what it turns out being is we've got narcotics traffickers providing us protection. That's crazy. Which, yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It, 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 <laughs> you know, and I know some people are probably listening to this thinking, boy, Murphy and Pena must be real idiots. But, I mean, we tried to vet everything we could based on the, the technological uh, systems and assets that we had at the time. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, that was the latest and greatest technology that we were using back then, and, mm -hmm. and even that couldn't identify it until things were over. Dang, that's amazing. And plus, you also had the infighting from the various cartels, right? I mean, the, you had the Cali brothers, and you, and you had um, so Pablo was on top, but there was still there were still were there still people trying to take him out and trying to um, you know hurt him, or was he just king and nobody touched him? No, there were always people trying to kill him. You know, at uh, at one point, he had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. Wow. He had an army. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, and that's a whole other story when you go to talking about that. But, mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that really surprised us the day that he was killed, December 2nd, 1993. He only had one bodyguard. You know, I mean, we all expected him to have a complete entourage. You know, it was going to be a, a major firefight. Mm -hmm. He was down to where he, I mean, he lost all his support system. Los Pepe's and the Columbia National Police were doing a great job at taking out members of the organization. Mm -hmm. And the day he was killed, he only had one guy there with him. Wow. Shocked us all. Wow. And that's the guy who survived, right? The, um... No, he was he was killed before Pablo was. Oh, he was. Okay. Yes, wow. wow. Wow, 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 wow. Well, and I, and I think it's just interesting that you have all of this knowledge, like, you know, you lived it. And it's, it's such a, you know, it's a legend now, right? So... Um, and you also have a book, right? Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. We do. It um, came out last year uh, by St. Martin's Press. And 
in fact, our paperback uh, version just came out a couple weeks ago, so that's now available. Okay. And how can people get that? Well, if you go to our website, which is www.deanarcos.com, so it's deanarcos.com, mm-hmm. um, we offer the book there. Uh, we also have a lot of other things on there. We have a lot of photographs, videos, links. Uh, there's a calendar on that will show you when and where we'll be in the world when our speaking business takes off after the uh, COVID virus calms down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the neat thing about it is if you order through our website, it's the only place you can get autographed and personalized copies of our book. Nice. And I, we personally sign every book, and I'll add the message on there, that whatever you want us to put in the book. Nice. Um, you know, the clean message, please. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised at what we get. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. So so the speaking tour is going to pick up when COVID um, calms down, but are, you guys are doing some virtual speaking too, right? We are. We've done several uh, corporate events virtually. Uh, we've done a few corporate uh, webinars. Um, I've been doing some a few high schools uh, just because I get bored pretty easy and <laughs> gives me something to do. Right. Um, and plus, I, you know, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like maybe I'm doing something good for the kids. Right. Um, but we're, I'll tell you what, I, I never, we were averaging 75 shows a year around the world. Wow. Um, I've got one case status for probably the rest of my life with United Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm quite honestly, I'm missing some of the travel here. It's, it's nice being home with my wife for a while. And, and thank God it turns out we still like each other after 30 something years of marriage. <laughs> Um, I'm I'm kind of ready to get back You're on the road. To, to be honest with you, yeah, yeah. Well, for for people who haven't um, seen um, Steve and, and Javier speak, it's it's a phenomenal experience, and um, I highly recommend it. So so www.deanarcos.com is pretty much where they can find your speaking calendar and um, your book. And then if somebody wants to hire you as for a virtual conference, um, where would they go? Same place to the website. You can. You can. There's a contact session section on there. Just uh, all the messages come directly to Javier and I. We work with uh, our speakers bureau is Greater Talent Network, um, which is part of United Talent Agency. So what we'll do is put you in direct contact with them, and, and the agents there will. They know how to run this much better. We just we know how to show up and make <laughs> idiots of ourselves on stage and leave. <laughs> awesome. They're the smart guys. Right. Right. Uh, huh. And then uh, yeah, we're. Um, actually, we're and I, I don't know that I should mention this on your podcast, but uh, you know we're we're working on starting our own true crime podcast. Hopefully, after the first of the year. Yep, go ahead. Okay. Well, it's it's uh, it's going to be a, a really a true crime podcast. Uh, true crime podcast is one of the largest uh, genres of podcast out there now. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one will be this one won't be comedians or housewives or people who couldn't find other jobs doing the podcast. This will be actual uh, police officers, retired police officers, uh, telling some of the untold stories of what goes on. And mm-hmm. most of the shows will have a guest on. Uh, it's going to be a weekly podcast. We've already outlined, I think probably the first year and a half of shows. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's not just good guys. We're going to have some bad guys on there. It's, I don't want to give up the secrets just yet. Uh, we're still negotiating with a couple, but uh, I think it's really going to shock the listeners about who we bring in here and to, to ask them some blunt questions about, that's, you know, you're, you're accused of committing this crime. How yeah. did you do this? Yeah. Oh, I'll be, I'll be listening to that because that's just fascinating <laughs> that you're going to bring, you know, the, the, the criminals in because, you know, 
I want to know how they think. I mean, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time and, um, you know, just the inside scoop on on what it was really like um, down in Medellin and, and Colombia. And I um, and, uh, really appreciate it, Steve. Lori, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's, it's, uh, it's been an honor to have known you for the past few years. And uh, I wish you all the success in the world. I know what you're doing working with first responders is critical and extremely important, especially nowadays with uh, the different sentiments that are going on out there in the world. So God bless you and thank you for what you do. Thanks for having me on the show. And that was Steve Murphy, one of the men responsible for capturing Pablo Escobar, who is still known as the richest criminal the world has ever known. And as Steve mentioned in the podcast, he is kind of a regular guy, you know, in, in some ways, he's an enigma because he is this amazing person, as is Javier Pena, his partner. But at the same time, he's really down to earth and a real person. And as you could tell by his conversation with me, someone you would just like to have as your friend. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Traumatic States of America. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Lori Hood, go to LoriHoodPhD.com. The Traumatic States of America podcast is produced and engineered by Band Alla Productions at their studio in Washington, D.C.